Coming up today, have we found evidence of alien life? Plus, how banks are tackling financial abuse and holidays in the time of COVID. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when TikTok parent company ByteDance submitted a proposal to the US Treasury that would see it work with Oracle on TikTok in the US. The proposed deal follows Donald Trump's threat to ban the app if its US operations weren't transferred to a US company. It was also the week when Microsoft removed its experimental underwater data center from the bottom of the sea near the Orkney Islands. The company says the metal tube filled with servers had a lower failure rate than data centers on land. This week, electric lorry maker Nikola has admitted to filming one of its lorries rolling downhill in a promotional video to disguise the fact that the lorry had no working engine. The startup, which is working on lorries powered by hydrogen fuel cells, was accused of faking the results of its research. Nikola insisted that it's only ever described the lorry as being in motion rather than driven. And finally, this was the week when Sony announced the pricing for its hotly anticipated PlayStation 5. The top-spec version of the console will match the price of rival Xbox One Series X at £449, and it is due to launch in November. Interesting facts this week. Who's got a great fact for me? Matt Burgess, your facts are always top-notch. They are, uh, and we actually had an email about some of my facts uh, uh, as feedback so but we'll get to that later um so something to look forward to there um my facts this week what i learned was that um some moths don't eat basically the adult lunar moth uh doesn't have a mouth and um it li- only lives for a week and when it emerges from a cocoon it's basically its sole purpose is to mate and lay eggs and in its week-long lifespan it doesn't eat anything at all wow what a life what does the lunar moth look like? Where might we see one? You might see one if you go and Google lunar moth uh, and then look on Google Images. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know what they look like. Um, I was just sort of like, uh, I can't remember where I came across this fact, but um, it was sort of standalone and there wasn't a picture of the lunar moth at the, at the same time. Um, so that's slightly disappointing. But a quick Google shows it being sort of green um as like very moth colored basically um they're quite they're quite big like half half the size of your hand um and they do they actually look a little bit more like a butterfly than a moth but still no mouth doesn't consume any food must be quite rare in the animal world to not have a mouth i wonder what other creatures are out there that never eat let us know if you know of any any such weird critters um amit what's your fact for us this week uh my fact is that drinks with bubbles in them get you drunk faster. Um, so in 2001, researchers at the University of Surrey gave six volunteers champagne and six of them flat champagne with the bubbles removed. And they found that the blood alcohol in those that were drinking the fizzy champagne was more than 20% higher. Why is that? Any idea? So they think that it's because the bubbles make it slightly easier for your digestive system to absorb alcohol. Ah, it's interesting because I always thought that was sort of a a bit of an old wives tale, really, you know, when people say, oh, champagne goes straight to my head. But apparently there is some science behind it. 
science and anecdotal evidence from uh, drinking in the park yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know how much you're drinking champagne in the park but um you do you Amit. <laughs> natasha what's your fact for us um, my fact is about the inventor of Vaseline, um, this is a man called Robert Cheeseborough, who ate a spoonful of the stuff every morning until he died, age 96. This is what he says, by the way, I, I wasn't there and no one else was here, so we have to take his word for it. He spent over a decade perfecting his extraction and purification process before introducing what he called wonder jelly to the world. He marketed it by driving around New York and burning his own skin with acid or an open flame and then putting the Vaseline jelly to his injury and showing the past injuries that he's healed. So this is a really kind of intense person who really liked Vaseline, really believed in his product, a true entrepreneur. And in fact, he was knighted by Queen Victoria because she loved Vaseline so much. She had very dry skin. So she was like, cool, now we'll call you Sir Robert Cheeseborough. That's what I learned. I have to say quite an interesting fact, quite a kind of, you know, a melange of multiple interesting facts about the inventor of Vaseline. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha. I learned, I learned a quite fantastic fact this week. I'm sure all of you will be uh, surprised by this one. I learned that more than 2 billion people in the US still get D Netflix DVDs by post. Sorry, I said that wrong. It's 2 million. 2 million people in the US still get Netflix DVDs by post. Amit, are you shocked? I, I, I was shocked until, and, and I, I was so shocked, that I actually wrote a piece about this for um, the wired.co.uk website where I uh, spoke to some of the people to ask them why they're still getting Netflix DVDs by post because it seems like such a quaint notion to us here in the UK where I think they stopped offering the service um, quite a few years ago. Um, in the US, the reasons that people kind of cited were things like uh, there's a much wider selection of films on available on DVD. So they've got something like 9,000 DVDs available versus, you know, uh, seven or 800 or something like that in terms of films on the streaming service. And then also the fact that in the US, uh, you know, some rural areas don't have very good kind of broadband connections or they have data caps, which means that you can't stream stuff as easily as you can in, in other countries. So that's those are two of the kind of contributing reasons to why there are still so many people getting uh, getting films by the post. I had no idea that Netflix still offered that service. Um, obviously, as you say, it doesn't do it here, but um, in the US. And it's quite interesting that they have a completely different library of films available on DVD versus streaming. Yeah, it's just a rights thing. So, you know, it's, it's the same as I think the copyright law is as if you'd bought the, you know, so they, they get every film that's been in cinemas as soon as it comes out on DVD, it's then available on Netflix DVD in the same way it would have been if you'd gone to Blockbuster or, or wherever back in the day. One problem that they've had actually is that a lot of people that I spoke to kind of said actually because there's no films coming out on, in the cinemas at the moment really, there's no new DVDs coming to Netflix's DVD service. So a few people have cancelled their, their subscription finally because actually there's nothing new for them to watch. Um, so this could be, you know, the pandemic could be the death knell for their Netflix DVDs finally. Although I suppose on the other hand, maybe there's more people with time at home looking for something to do, especially as the winter months come in. Yeah, and I, I guess as as, um, as cinemas kind of slowly reopen, there will be extra stuff kind of coming out. But yeah, if, if you've run out of stuff to watch on, on Netflix itself, uh, then yeah, there are 9,000 DVDs waiting for you on, on the DVD TV platform. <laughs> We've got an event to tell you about. Wired Health Tech is taking place virtually on September 22nd. So that's next week. It's a brand new event all about the innovation, tech and ideas behind the future of patient care. It's being broadcast live throughout the day with loads of great speakers and interactive workshops to enjoy. 
Speakers include Eric Topol, who's one of the most cited medical researchers of all time, Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR, and Heidi Larson, director and founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project. We've got a great deal on our all-access event pass for podcast listeners. Both you and a colleague can attend all the virtual sessions, including workshops for the low price of £90. That's a saving of £50. It'll be an insightful and inspiring virtual day, so please do take us up on this great offer. To find out more and to book your discounted tickets, head to wired.uk slash health dash podcast. That's wired.uk slash health dash podcast. Now, our first story this week, it's probably one of the biggest science stories of the year, if you forget about coronavirus. We may have discovered signs of alien life. Amit, tell us more. Yeah, exactly. So for decades, we've been talking about, you know, life on Mars, and we've been scouring the red planet for evidence of water that could support living organisms. And we've been kind of turning our instruments to the universe and to the galaxy, you know, outside of our solar system looking for a planet, you know, X million light years away that could have signs of life or could support life. Uh, And it turns out we might have been looking in the wrong direction. So on Monday, um, as you say, Vicky, a news that would have been a lot bigger if it had happened at literally any other time. Um, An international team of scientists announced that they had found potential signs of life floating in the atmosphere above Venus. So our next door neighbours. Yeah, and as you say, this is really surprising because Venus has never been the sort of prime candidate that we've thought of for alien life. People have been looking primarily at Mars, thinking it's maybe a bit more Earth-like, conditions a bit more appropriate. So what exactly did they find? So they were using um, radio telescopes in Hawaii and in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and they identified a specific wavelength which corresponds to a gas called phosphine floating in the clouds 50 kilometres above Venus. So what's interesting about phosphine is that we don't know of any non-biological ways that it could be made on Venus. Um, we, we can produce it industrially in factories here on Earth, but obviously there are no factories on Venus as far as we're aware. Um, and in, on Earth, it's found in places like in penguin stomachs or in low oxygen swamps. Um, and it's present in large amounts on Jupiter and Saturn, where there are kind of violent storms that can create the ideal conditions for producing this gas. But those conditions, again, aren't replicated on Venus as far as we know. So that means that that, you know, this gas had to have come from somewhere and there's a possibility, having ruled out all those other options, that it could be being released by a- tiny alien microbes in the planet's atmosphere. So I have to admit, I was expecting kind of a blurry, questionable photograph of an alien, something that was perhaps a bit more specific. Um, is is what you're talking about basically just, just a gas? They've just found, found a bit of gas yeah, instead, it's, it's... maybe? It's all a lot of hot air. Um, I mean, it could, it could be a sentient <laughs> gas, I suppose, or a malevolent gas, but uh, it is a gas nonetheless. Um, but it is promising uh, in scientific terms for two reasons. So the first thing is the amount of phosphine. So there seems to be between 5 and 20 parts per billion of phosphine in, in the Venetian, Venusian? Venetian atmosphere I'm going to go for. Um, that doesn't seem like a lot, but it's, it's thousands of times more than what you'd find in Earth's atmosphere. And the second thing is that we know that phosphine constantly gets broken down by light. So the fact that we're able to detect it in such large quantities means that there is some process going on on Venus that's constantly replenishing this gas. Um, That's not necessarily a biological process, but we don't know of any chemical or physical process that could be operating on Venus. So this is why scientists are so excited about it. And this may be an obvious question, but when um, Venus is so close to us, essentially, uh, at least compared to some of the other uh, places uh, that we've been looking for life. Why has it taken us so long to be able to uh, find uh, or discover this gas? 
Yeah, so as I kind of mentioned earlier, most of our attention has been focused towards Mars. Um, scientists have you know, argued for a long time that Venus might be able to support life, but we haven't really tried that hard to check it out. Um, instead, we've kind of focused on Mars and on the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Um, and that's just because Venus seems to be so inhospitable. So the surface temperature on Venus averages more than 420 degrees Celsius. Its atmospheric pressure is more than 90 times the force of, Earth, the force of Earth's atmosphere at sea level. So it's a huge high pressure environment. And the clouds are actually more than 80% sulfuric acid, which means it's really difficult to, you know, kind of send probes there. The planet has a nasty habit of melting and crushing anything we've, we've sent there so far. Um, but actually what scientists now think is that the further you get away from the surface of the planet, things get a bit friendlier. So about 31 kilometers above the planet's rocky surface, the temperature drops to a, a kind of balmy 30 degrees, which is similar to that of Earth um, at the moment anyway. Um, we know that microbes can live in the atmosphere on Earth, so it's plausible that life may have, you know, sprung up on the surface of Venus when it was a more hospitable environment, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago, and that could have made its way into the atmosphere and stayed there and, and, and made life there while conditions on the surface deteriorated. Now, we should probably uh, take a moment here just to point out that, you know, this is an initial observation. And as with anything in science, we'll be looking for kind of further confirmation and things uh, to find out, well, first to confirm the results and, and say that they are definitely correct. And then also to look more into what they could actually mean. It's definitely not kind of definitive proof of alien life yet, right? So so how do we find out for sure what happens next? Yeah, we're, we're a very long way from, from confirming that, that A, that this gas even exists and, it, and B, if this gas actually does exist in, in the, the atmosphere on Venus, that it has anything to do with life, it might, it might not. So the first thing to do is kind of confirm the observations from the telescopes with more detailed measurements using these big radio telescopes um, yeah, in, in Chile and um, you know, around the world. Um, but I mean, to really confirm the presence of the gas, what we would really need is a kind of sample from the atmosphere and that will take a while because it obviously involves sending a probe into the Venus atmosphere and, and bringing something back to Earth so it can be analysed or sending something with instruments that can analyse it, you know, there and then. Um, so a private company called Rocket Lab has got a mission to Venus planned for 2023. NASA has already shortlisted two possible Venus probes that could eventually head to Venus. Uh, and it's likely that this discovery in itself will prompt a new flurry of kind of proposed journeys. Um, Actually, in a weird quirk, we might not have to wait as long as that because by complete coincidence, there's a joint Japanese and European mission to Mercury called Bepi Colombo, which is um, scheduled to do two flybys of Venus to slow itself down on the way to Mercury. One of those is actually in less than a month, so mid-October, uh, and then the other one is next August. So the Bepi Colombo probe is going to try and detect phosphine using one of its instruments, although obviously it wasn't designed for that purpose, so scientists aren't quite sure if it's going to be sensitive enough, enough to do it. But... Uh, if we're lucky, we may have some confirmation either way, um, you know, within a few a few weeks. Very exciting stuff. And obviously we have no for, you know, even if we do have further evidence that this is some sort of alien life, we have no idea what that would be like, presumably uh, something completely different to what we call life on Earth, potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's likely that it will be a little bit underwhelming you know these aren't going to be they're going to be microbes or, or kind of tiny organisms it's not as if we're, we've just met et or anything like that so i think even if there is signs of life on on venus it's not going to be a a, a world shattering event i don't think at this point and, and, and frankly it'll probably take several years for us to confirm it either way so uh aliens may be sighted but uh don't get too excited yet
Well, exciting stuff nonetheless, and a story that will no doubt be following over the next months and years as further probes are sent towards Venus. Uh, Our second story is about banks um, and new attempts to deal with economic abuse, a type of domestic abuse. Matt Burgess, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so this week uh, on Wired.co.uk, we've been reporting around how banks are essentially um, failing to handle uh, financial abuse. And before getting to some of the sort of details around this, just wanted to put a bit of the context out there, because um, I guess financial abuse and economic abuse aren't things that are particularly uh, talked about too often, or at least in not not in some circles. So just, just for an idea of what this is, um, financial abuse um, falls under the sort of broader definition of economic abuse itself and it is a phrase that they're phrases that are essentially used interchangeably um and really sort of like the um the the sort of not the concept behind this or the actions behind this uh it's it's a form of de- domestic abuse which is used to control and degrade people uh, so according to the charity uh surviving economic abuse 95 percent of people who experience domestic abuse which is uh, around two and a half million adults a year in the uk they're also uh, experiencing some form of economic abuse um, the charity claims that one in five british women have experienced financial abuse in a current or former relationship so the ways that this can sort of manifest itself um, and there are many of these so this is only a small sort of snapshot but um, such things as uh, putting debt in a partner's name stealing money and setting up joint credit cards without consent um, and essentially ways of asserting control of uh, economic or work freedom so doing things to impose upon uh, quite often a partner or somebody in a relationship's their ability to uh, sort of operate financially and economically and this can obviously have uh, both short and long-term impacts on the victim so in the story that we reported this week uh, one of our freelance writers uh, Josh uh, spoke to a few uh, survivors of this type of abuse so uh, Leslie was one of them and that that is not uh, the real name of the survivor in this case but their relationship ended in 2017 uh, and her husband essentially had not been going to work she was the main earner and keeping their account topped up uh, and he was out spending money uh, on designer suits and trips abroad with other women and Leslie uh, said in, in our reporting that um, she was asking why the bank didn't notice that for years uh, she was the only person who had been putting money into this account but uh, he was withdrawing money and lump sums of several thousand pounds at a time and despite pleas um, to help uh, the banks that she had been sort of dealing with hadn't been uh, responding to this or sort of tackling the issue in any way Uh, and she said that at the time the banks weren't really willing to listen to the complaints that she was making. So with everyone working from home we've heard a lot about domestic abuse in general increasing and there being more reports of that as people are you know stuck home off potentially not in the best environment has that also had an impact here? In in short yes Um, so uh, the Charity, uh, as I mentioned, Surviving Economic Abuse and also Women's Aid, uh, both independently told us that they have seen a increase in the number of calls to their helpline surrounding economic abuse during the pandemic. Um, and essentially, there has been sort of an intensified period of uh, this type of abuse happening. Um, so uh, earlier this year, I think in April, Women, Women's Aid, during one of its surveys uh, of survivors, um, 
uh, found that a third of respondents reported their abuser blaming them for the economic impact of the pandemic on their household. Uh, obviously, during the pandemic, uh, these, these are UK focused stats, but um, lots of people have been put on furlough in the UK, not going to work. There has been sort of people losing jobs and there's been an economic impact and damage the economy generally around um, around uh, around people's finances. Um, so one of the uh, people working with these charities uh, said that the pandemic has made abusers worse. Uh, but it's also closed down opportunities for victims and survivors of economic abuse to report um, cases of this discreetly because they have been uh, at home with their abusers. It's hard to use the, it's harder to find time or space to use the phone to report this type of abuse during um, during the pandemic because everybody has been in the same place. Um, and as you mentioned, Vicky, this is sort of uh, also very consistent with uh, wider trends around domestic abuse statistics that we've seen during lockdown. Down. So uh, in July, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline reported more than 40,000 calls and contacts were made uh, to it during the first three months of lockdown in the UK, which was 80% higher than the sort of equivalent period last year. And Refuge, the charity that runs that hotline, said uh, there had been a 54% increase in women wanted to access emergency accommodation during uh, the first months of the pandemic. I guess one of the problems with economic abuse is that it's not it's not it doesn't really get talked about that much and it, it's not very visible so it's kind of hard for for people to get help it, what's being done about it you know is, is there something that the banks can do for example so yeah in in our reporting this week we were looking at essentially the response of some of the uh, banks to to this uh, situation and generally it's a sort of feeling from uh, people who work with survivors uh, have been that banks haven't been responsive enough over recent years to tackle these sorts of issues particularly at a time when uh, people are increasingly digitally banking or uh, having less uh, face-to-face contact with their banks themselves uh, so while reporting the story our uh, freelancer Josh was speaking to uh, several uh, people that had survived this sort of scenario uh, and in one case uh, quite a few people pointed out that uh, the fintech Monzo has been doing a lot more than others to other banks to help and is setting a bit of a model with its sort of technological approach to dealing with uh, this type of abuse and um, other uh, types of abuse as well. So uh, unsurprisingly, it's using its technology platform to help. So uh, Monzo particularly has introduced a, a technological tool which um, basically involves sort of like traceless messaging. So people through the app can contact the bank and uh, sort of share examples of abuse or raise a situation and then uh, essentially sort of the bank will contact them uh, they can set up particular code words so they can alert um, the bank who can then in turn alert the police to examples of uh, economic abuse or abuse that goes starts out economic and then goes further into maybe physical physical or domestic abuse um, and uh, they basically have got in place mechanisms um, and code words to uh, for instance uh, you could set up a uh, something on the app such as if you send a message saying my chip and pin is broken to um to the to the bank's teams um through this through this sort of traceless uh, messaging feature um they could uh, then alert people and sort of get help so one person that um 
the, the story spoke to uh, said that in um, uh, over recent times they had uh, suffered with uh, this type of abuse and uh, they essentially then messaged and were put in touch with the correct helplines and stuff. Um, so basically the banks could do more and they're starting to do more. So others over recent years have launched uh, domestic and financial abuse teams uh, but haven't necessarily got technolo- technology or other mechanisms, mechanisms in place. So um, in March, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England uh, started talking about using this uh, technology, well, technologically technological approach uh, a bit more to uh, tackle the issue. So obviously banks have a lot of data on people and a lot of uh, information about how they behave so they can, uh, they know who's taking money out of accounts, they know uh, where spending is happening and in a lot of cases banks have spent a lot of money on uh, improving fraud detection. So uh, they have systems in place that can automatically flag um, when people are spending money maybe abroad or if a, uh, or if a uh, transaction looks fraudulent, these things can be uh, sort of automatically created. So there are calls and talk of doing more using AI or other automated systems uh, that can detect anonymous behavior uh, that could be a sign of abuse or other types of um, other, other types of wrongdoing. Um, and I guess one of the sort of like the big questions around this, and it's something that people are looking at going forward, is if there's a lot of money being put into investing uh, technologies for fraud detection, stuff like that, shouldn't there also be um, this type of um, this type of advances made in tackling abuse and other issues like this. So um, there's a, there's basically a lot more that could be done in this space, and there are ways that technology uh, could help to to make things better for um, survivors and victims of this type of abuse. It sounds quite simple, doesn't it? Just you know, providing a kind of trailless messaging service so that you can send a message discreetly, you know, without anyone overseeing it or or overhearing it. It's it's quite you know, it's not. Um, any kind of huge innovative technology it's a a simple thing that could maybe actually be of help to quite a few people sounds like a good idea yeah i think it's just getting in place systems and processes uh to to think about these ideas and sort of solutions or potential solutions to some of the problems that are out there um and i get i think there's probably a lot of other uh, banks and financial institutions that could look at what monzo has done and learn from it as well so um yeah that wouldn't paint technology as a complete uh, solution or picture to any of these issues they're obviously really sort of like complex and deep and nuanced but uh, there are things that can be done that aren't being done at the moment Excellent. If you'd like to comment on any of our stories in this week's podcast, use the usual address, podcast at wired.co.uk. We'll be reading out some of your thoughts at the end of this week's episode, and we'd love to include more next week as well. So that's podcast at wired.co.uk. Natasha, you've got our final story this week, and it's about holidays. It's holiday yeah. season, right? Just, just the tale of it. Sort of. I mean, for some people, it is holiday season because it's imposed rather than voluntary. But um, I want to start off with a quick uh, sort of straw poll to see whether you guys have taken any holidays or time off this year and what you've done. So I think I'll start with Amit, um, who's uh, looking rather I shifty. <laughs> I've taken one week off where we went to Cornwall and it rained every day. Uh, that was about two weeks ago. No, three weeks ago, something like that. Yeah, so I, I, I went... Yeah, the first nine months of the year or whatever without taking any holiday at all. Yeah, that's not great. What about you, Vicky? I just got back from a little staycation, actually, uh, two weeks around the Scottish Highlands. It was lovely. Um, saw lots of 
natural beauty. Um, it was fantastic. Um, yeah, usually I would travel abroad, um, but I really actually appreciated the time to go and, and explore more of the country and being out in the open so much with very few people around, it felt incredibly safe. That sounds really nice, actually. Burgess? Uh, yeah, so for the first time ever, I was actually really prepared this year and had um, booked out pretty much all of my holidays before uh, before the pandemic started. So I uh, managed to get away uh, in February uh, beforehand, but then had got several sort of long weekends and other breaks over the sort of like strictest periods of lockdown. Um, and I decided to actually take those holidays still in terms of like taking them off work, didn't travel anywhere, uh, mostly sat uh, on a different chair to the one that I spend my days working in um, and did a lot of reading and stuff like that but decided to keep the sort of breaks rather than sort of like delaying them for sort of uh, hoping that they would be able to go away uh, more later in the year. It's funny you say that because that's exactly um, the topic of conversation in this article which is all about basically people who have decided um, whether through voluntarily saying I don't want to sit in the same room where I work in or because they felt like they couldn't or because they didn't want to to take zero holidays this year so um, in the UK people took an average of 3.9 holidays a year which is more than the previous year so every year we're going up but most of them have been enjoying staycations and experiences abroad a bit of a mix of both Um, the data for this year is still not available but that is unlikely to be the case as the pandemic spread across the world at the beginning of the year followed by lockdown and March in the UK, really confusing air corridors and quarantines after that. Many people just decided, I'm not going to take holidays until this is all over. Of course, it's not over. It's never going to be over. <laughs> it stretches off into the distance like an endless purgatory. So um, people have been left with a massive amount of holidays. So a lot of other people have said, you know, I, I don't feel like I can. So they've been faced with huge economic uncertainty, especially if they're, if they're working in sectors that have been really badly hit by coronavirus or they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. So at the mo- most possibly most stressful time in living memory, some people still have in the UK 25 to 28 days holiday to take now before the end of the year Um, of course this could be massively chaotic if companies decide that people can't roll over any of those days into 2021 so just to look at the 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 sheer scale of things you'd have to take all of your time off um, in the space of three months so people could have to take the entire of December off for example just to make up for the amount of time they would have lost during the year so this is not great so people aren't taking holidays I mean holidays are you know they're kind of a nice perk of the job right you know everyone likes a bit of time off and to travel and so on but they're also sort of necessary right you know everyone needs to take a break sometimes and and refresh how bad is it for your health if you just don't take time off well so it's weirdly while I was writing this um, article I found that there's very very little information about what truly happens to our, our bodies if we don't take regular holiday breaks so there's a lot out there about you know if you don't take regular breaks from work so like you know coffee breaks or if you don't have a break between you know your work and your life um, what happens to you but actually holidays hasn't been something that people have a lot of data on so um, I, I spoke to uh, some people from the University of Helsinki who uh, looked at the health of more than a thousand two hundred male executives over the course of 40 years Um, And they kind of hit upon something interesting. So they found that those who took less than 21 days holiday a year had higher risk of early death. Um, People who don't take breaks away from work uh, for long periods of time are likely to sleep less, 
do less exercise and have higher stress levels. So I spoke to the professor who led the study, whose name is Timo Strandberg, and he said... He was basically saying the same thing as what I've just said now. There's a massive lack of information to determine whether there's a magic formula to improve our chances of avoiding burnout and potential cardiovascular problems. So in the UK, people have an average of between 25 to 28 days a year to take. In Finland, where the study was conducted, people tend to have four weeks off which they take at set times of the year. So apparently everyone in Finland takes holidays in July. And it's a thing. So you're used to kind of getting loads of out of offices. If you're in the office um, at that time in July, there's no one else there. So everyone will have this sort of customer. It's a cultural thing to take your holidays um, at that time of the year. So there isn't a, a good idea though about whether one thing works or or one thing doesn't work so in the US for example people have very few holidays if you're lucky you have two weeks paid holiday off but there's no way to know whether those in Finland who are taking July off are in a better shape uh, than people in the US who might stagger and have a few days here or there um the problem with that is that obviously there's a lack of data so we don't know what to do, but also experts claim that there's been a long-running issue with the way people act when they're on holiday anyway. So this notion that you're going to have someone to replace you while you're off and do your work for you just doesn't exist anymore if it ever did exist. Um, and the fact is people are afraid that when they come back from holiday, there's going to be repercussions. So they're going to have this mountain of work that's just kept on growing in their absence and they're going to be faced with a, a tsunami of emails, of, of just stuff, your projects are still ongoing, you still have to do them. And so a lot of people have been spending their holidays still checking their emails, still working on projects and just don't have the disconnect that you would classically get from, from time off um, in the past. Um, another thing that seems to be happening is that there are other people that hide the fact that they can't cope with their workloads. So they'll take holidays um, and time off and actually spend the entire time working um, on those projects that they just didn't have time to do during their day to day. So there's a lot of kind of sneaky things that people have been doing um, regularly now before the crisis hit. Uh, so a really, really big issue, especially because burnout is, is a very big thing anyway. And it's not just one person who says, I'm not going to take a holiday for a year. It's an entire population of people that should be taking breaks and might not have been taking breaks well at the beginning anyway of all this um, and might have zero holidays and have spent maybe like 10, almost 10 months of no holidays. It's terrible. It, it's pretty. It's a pretty grim picture. I mean, I, I guess from the, the other the other side of it is that, as you mentioned earlier, like you, what companies don't want to happen is for everyone to try and take their holiday in the last month of the year because, uh, especially at a time when I guess we're trying to restart the economy to a certain extent after the pandemic, everyone kind of suddenly taking you know a month off um, isn't going to help. Or I mean, it will help them from a you know a health perspective and stuff like that, which is obviously great. But from a economic perspective uh it might not be great but what is the government doing is the government doing anything to kind of help uh people who haven't had a chance to take holidays or help people whose holiday might be running out before they have time to use it yeah so the government has introduced a temporary new law which allows employees and workers to carry up to four weeks paid holiday into their next two holiday leave years so that would mean kind of spreading your current holidays across 2021 and 2022 um, if your employer agrees that that's okay so this is the entire of your holiday you would just not have any uh, in 2020 which to me is is 
depressing fact in and of itself. But but this law is is very specific, and it only applies a if a company wants to, b if if the employer worker did not take their holiday because of coronavirus. So for, if they were self isolating, for example, if they've had to continue working and haven't been able to take holiday, or those that have been furloughed. So even though you might not have been working and you might have been one of the millions of people that were sort of put on the furlough scheme to have your salary covered by the government, you still accrue holiday days um, and you have to take them. And so um, those people are allowed to kind of push those forward to 2021, 2022, if their companies want them to. Of course, that will create a massive backlog where suddenly people might have 40 days to take. Um, across, you know, across a year, um, and it does. It also factors in the the the, the point where you, if you want to leave a job next year, uh, you would have rather than a few days to pay your employees, potentially dozens of days that you owe them, which is a massive amount of money for companies that don't really um, have the sort of economic stability needed to cover those costs. So um, what we found, though, is that not many people are um, following these government rules at the moment, at least. Um, instead, the people that I've spoken to have talked about businesses encouraging people to go on holiday, even if they're just sitting in their own living rooms, or forcing them to spend their holidays by the end of the year by asking them to just, you know, you've just got to take them somehow, take days off, doesn't matter if you have nowhere to go, you can't carry them over. So they're, they're very much forcing the issue. Um, however, there is a kind of nice element to this where there are, a lot, there are lots of businesses who have decided look, to tell people to just forget about their holidays and instead offering them wellness days. Um, so saying, you know, we'd like you to volunteer for a day. We'd like you to do something else. And you can do it on company time. Just take some time off. Don't worry about your holidays. That doesn't matter. We just need you to take time off because otherwise the burnout will be really, really bad for the bottom line of our business. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of different uh, ramifications and impacts of different behaviours overall. So if people are not taking holidays, uh, could be very different to people that have been on furlough and then have, may have holidays to roll over or stuff like that. How much of this sort of comes back down to uh, individual company culture and, and how employees are treated, I guess? It's all about company culture. It's it's really, really fundamental thing. So um, there was a survey of European business leaders earlier this year that showed that people said, you know, we might take five days off in the next six months. Um, and what experts have been saying is basically, if you don't, if you don't lead by example, people won't follow. So if you're as a boss telling people to take holidays and you're not doing it yourself, um, it's just not going to happen. People don't feel comfortable. They feel paranoid about whether that that's going to affect their performance or their job or their prospects specs um, they just won't do it there have been companies in the past that have offered um, unlimited holidays for example to employees and people saw that as a trap uh, because they thought wait a second what does this mean uh, does it mean that I if I if I take holidays and I don't do my job properly or someone decides I don't do my job properly um, will there be repercussions and so people were taking fewer and fewer holidays so it, it's one of those situations where a lot of experts point to things like shared parental leave as examples of, of how these can these things can go wrong so you offer shared parental leave you encourage people to do this but the uptake hasn't been great so far um, and a lot of people blame the fact that a lot of bosses are you know not doing it themselves and so if, if you don't kind of show your employees it's okay to take time off they're not going to want to do that if you have the culture where you email people back straight away while you're on holiday they're going to feel like they have to do that too so um it's it's yeah if, if, if you don't make a culture of responsibility um of going on holidays within your own ranks 
if you go on holiday yourself and don't encourage people to do the same, you're going to end up in this situation. And there's a weird anecdote that I got from one of my experts, which I thought was quite funny, which is um, a a chief executive really kind of benevolently um, realised that when he went on holiday, he would, if he shut off his emails and he couldn't access his emails, he felt great. And so he told people, do the same. So he in- implemented this sort of company-wide policy whereby people couldn't access their emails after 5pm and also during holidays. And people were going berserk because it didn't fit within their, their life their work-life balance, a lot of people had kids, they would come back from picking them up from school and then they wouldn't be able to access their emails. And it was it, it just shows that it's a very individual decision and that companies have to factor in just that one size doesn't fit all uh, for everything and that if you're not um, leading by example and doing things right and, you know, setting up the situation where people can take holidays, it's just not going to happen. Let us know if you've had any holidays this year. Maybe you've done a staycation. Maybe you managed to get abroad. Or maybe you've just taken time off like Matt Burgess and enjoyed sitting in another chair than your work chair. We'd love to hear about your experiences from around the world. It's podcast at wired.co.uk. And we've got some feedback from earlier episodes this week. The first is from Minette in Cape Town, who writes in about Natasha's story on lifts. Yeah, so Minette was talking about the paternoster, which came up... um, I think twice maybe in in a couple of our podcasts, uh, one of my favourite types of lifts. So please do look it up if you haven't done so yet. But she said uh, she was intrigued, as you would be, um, about the piece on the Paternoster, partly because of the name. She says that there's a beautiful, quaint fishing village on the west coast of South Africa called Paternoster. And she goes, I looked at some videos and it looks quite dangerous. So if you haven't seen it, it's basically a lift with different sort of uh, carriages and it, it kind of moves um, like a conveyor belt. It doesn't stop. You can get off, you can get on whenever you want. It goes up to the top of the building, goes down again. Um, and yeah, it apparently it's very bad if you get a limb caught in there. Um, and yeah, it can be quite dangerous. So she has a good she has a good point. But she said, Paternoster translates as our father, the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. She goes, biblical. I wonder whether the lift system is so called because it ascends into the heavens or because you'd better say your prayers before you get in. Well, thanks, Minette, because you're absolutely bang on the money. The name does come from the system's resemblance to rosary prayer beads. So it operates on a loop and it's the same sort of space. And so just like you mimic when you, if you're Catholic and you do rosary prayers, that's exactly the way that a paternoster lift works. Um, It has compartments that go round and round. And the name in Latin for our father is the thing that um, begins the Lord's Prayer and is the name of the Paternoster. So, yeah, I don't know if that was a guess or if she Googled it and just tried to make me look clever. But either way, thanks, Minette. <laughs> uh, we, we had another email from Joe this week as well, uh, who was uh, taking, uh, well, Joe said that they were triggered by my fact about a pencil last week um, because they had heard it on a podcast quite recently as well. Um, so my, fa- my fact, just to recap, was uh, that it was believed that a pencil uh, can be used to write 45,000 words or draw a 35-mile uh, single line. Um, and Joe said that uh, this has actually been fact-checked, which I didn't think it had at the time. Uh, a group of American uh, Americans from Pennsylvania 
uh, read the facts in Discovery magazine and decided to try it. They set out on a project called uh, To Write a Mockingbird, where they obviously tried to, uh, to to copy out the text from from the book. And there was a team of 25 of them. Uh, over 100 hours, they wrote 100,000 words with one pencil. Uh, and there was an inch of the pencil left to spare. Um, and the, the podcast this was also discussed on uh, said that it was more likely believed that 35 miles for drawing a line with uh, a pencil would be far too much and they reckon it could do about two miles uh, rather than the, the bigger number so basically the the fact that I had not uh, really fact-checked um, had been fact-checked and I was completely wrong uh, and the pencil is a lot more uh, resilient than we thought it was a hundred thousand words is a lot of uh, a lot of use to get out of a pencil um, so yeah thank you very much for emailing in with that Joe. Thanks for the correction, Joe. And yes, hosts, please try to fact check your facts. No fake facts on here. <laughs> Amit, you've got some feedback from George. Yes, that's right. So uh, George wrote in about um, the story we did last week on Pret-a-Manger. Um, and, and, and we were talking about this kind of economy that kind of springs up in cities that's kind of completely built around the fact that people have to commute this this whole, because you have to commute, you're in a rush, so you have to buy a sandwich, which kind of keeps this kind of chain of, sandwich shops going and how that's kind of all, all disappeared um, because of coronavirus. You know, there's a whole vast range of industries and city centres that kind of are, are built on this. So George is kind of talking about that and he's he's kind of saying that actually, you know, since lockdown, he's been kind of eating food at home. He's been exercising locally in nature instead of in expensive gyms. He's, you know, spending the two hours he would have been spent commuting with his, with his family and his close friends that live nearby him. Um, so he's kind of basically making the argument that you know, it's okay to let Pratt die because we'll we'll be okay. Um, and he says, you know, that's why in the beginning of the year you bought two Shvangar slices of bread with some mayo in between them for four pounds, which sounds like a horrible sandwich. And that's that's the only other thing I wanted to say. So it's kind of he's just talking about how our lives have changed, and yeah, it might mean rebalancing the economy a bit, or that certain sectors suffer. But actually, maybe he's arguing that overall it'll be better for all of us to have a, a kind of healthier work-life balance, I suppose. I think it's that that question here, you know, in an ideal world, maybe that would be true for everyone. But I feel like everyone's circumstances are quite different. And maybe not everyone has that kind of ideal home life where they can actually, you know, go and buy the fresh ingredients and make their own lunch every day and have the the time to do that, even if it does save money. Yeah, exactly. You know, for, for, for many people working from home is a luxury, but for many people working from the office is a luxury, right? You know, yeah. And, and and also let's not forget that, you know, the vast majority of people globally don't work in offices at all. Uh, and they still need services and they, they may work in city centres, you know, uh, doing other things. And there there is an economy that's required to kind of support those people as well. So I think it's very easy to see this kind of from a from an office centric point of view. But actually, we need to kind of think about the whole economy and the whole population. That's true. It's definitely true, though, that, you know, the, the city seems to be changing. Perhaps we will see a bit of a shift away from this idea of everyone having to be in a city centre. Um, I think the jury's probably still out on that one as the coronavirus pandemic continues. We'll see what long term trends ultimately come out of it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week at the same time uh, with more great stories from wired.co.uk. That's it from us this week. Bye. 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 Bye.